This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you so much. That was an excessively generous introduction. And it might even be considered a case of insiderism uh, because I have felt a strong bond to the CAP Center uh, for a very long time. And as uh, Clark said, I've been privileged to come here several times. My very first connection uh, to the CAP Center came when a lovely woman named Laura Capps, who many of you know, uh, was sitting outside George Stephanopoulos's office in the White House, where she worked uh, at the time. Uh, and as many of you know, to meet Laura is to love her immediately, and it's also to love the entire Caps family. Uh, I met Laura shortly after our first child, uh, James, now 24 years old, uh, was born. And we quickly got into a conversation about Laura's dad, whom many of you uh, knew, um, and also about her extraordinary, her extraordinary mom, Lois. Uh, And, yeah, well, go ahead. Give Lois a... She's here somewhere, I think. Has anybody, by the way, ever timed a retirement from Congress better? Uh, (laughs) I'd much rather be in Santa Barbara. Uh, um, And so the the love and the profound admiration that she expressed uh, for her mom... Uh, and dad just stayed with me. And when her dad died, I called Laura and I told her uh, that she had given me the most ambition, uh, the most important ambition of my life, uh, which is that I hope someday my kids talk about me the way Laura talked about her mom and dad. And <clears throat> I, um, I actually mentioned this to my daughter who asked me where I was going, and she said, oh, Dad, we feel that way about you, but I don't think that was dispositive as to my ambition. I'm going to have to have to wait. Um, and by the way, it's also great to see that Laura has unsurprisingly continued uh, her uh, continued in her family's uh, tradition of public service, and she is the only Caps who's ever run unopposed. Uh, and uh, the citizens of this area are, are very blessed. And Clark uh, has been an extraordinary leader of this uh, great institution. He's a good man, a wise man, a grounded man, uh, and a man of joyous uh, intellectual curiosity. Um, At the Princeton Theological Seminary some years ago, Clark gave a wonderful series of lectures on how the United States' religious world was witnessing what he called the rise of the quest culture. Uh, And when you develop a great theory like that, you can't resist noticing how everything around you confirms your theory. So Clark noted that even the model names of cars and trucks supported his sociological theory. The Voyager, the Explorer, uh, even the Quest uh, itself. Um, He cited Nissan's television ad, Life is a Journey, Enjoy the Ride. Uh, And yes, Clark noted, quotes, the U.S. Army co-ops a basic teaching of humanistic psychology when it proclaims in its commercials, be all that you can be. Now, I actually agree uh, with Clark's intuition about who we are as a people. As he put it then, Americans are hungry for greater spiritual depth, and they are looking to meet this need in many places. 
And I think that sentence explains why he has made such a success at the CAP Center. Um, it is meeting the very need uh, Clark described in that uh, essay more than two decades ago. He's never stopped questing himself, uh, and he knows that others are on a journey to be all that they can be while they also enjoy the ride. Uh, and that's what the CAP Center does. And I can't think of a better description of what Clark and his colleagues have accomplished here. Um, now, given that uh, Donald Trump um, is, uh, gave his first address to Congress tonight, I might have been seen uh, uh, either as a warm-up act or the backup band, <laughs> although uh, given my views uh, and his views on the media, I doubt we would even be found in the same county, let alone on the same billing. Um, but I cannot resist uh, beginning tonight with one of my very favorite Trump jokes uh, from the last campaign, and appropriately for the CAP Center, uh, it has a religious theme. Um, you might recall during the campaign that Trump tangled uh, with Pope Francis. Uh, Francis, by the way, is one of my heroes, and he offered, oh, we can give Francis a round of applause. Um, and Francis offered a far more telling uh, criticism of political pundits than Trump has ever uh, uh, done. Uh, Francis once said, and I'm quoting him, he who claims to have all the answers, God is not with that person. <laughs> and now think about it. Applying Francis's views would be the end of every cable television show, since everyone on cable television has to pretend to have all the answers. But as the great New York Times columnist Gail Collins likes to say, but I digress, um, after Trump had his little uh, to-do with the Pope, uh, my Washington Post colleague, uh, Carlos Lozada, tried to imagine uh, what the next Trump tweet might be. And so this is what he tweeted. It took him three days to rise. I would have done it in three hours. <laughs> Jesus, very weak. <laughs> I have not seen Trump send this tweet out yet, but I am uh, waiting. Um, now, I could spend the whole evening telling more Trump jokes and offering a barrage of criticisms and explaining why I, in fact, am more worried for my country than I have ever been uh, in my life. Um, anyone who's ever, who's read anything I have written over the last year knows that I believe he has no business being president. I am worried above all about what I see as his autocratic uh, tendencies uh, and the potential threats that I think could arise during his presidency to our basic norms and institutions. He's already undercut many of those norms. Um, but given how this state in this area voted, I don't think you need to be told any of that. Uh, and I will only say that the best way to fight for democracy is to engage in it, to organize, to argue, to speak out, to demonstrate peacefully, to vote. Um, And if you are of a mind to, to run for public office yourself. Uh, if there is one good thing to come out of this period, it is a new civic awareness and a new civic engagement, uh, particularly among young Americans, but really across the board. 
Um, and I've also been struck by how many Americans are speaking up on behalf of groups that are not their own. How magnificent it is to see in some communities American Muslim organizations not only condemning the desecration of Jewish cemeteries, but also contributing to rebuilding them. How great is it? How great is it that American Jews and American Christians are speaking up against the president's Muslim ban, and that is what it is, and standing up for the rights of our Muslim brothers and sisters? How important it is that so many around the country are standing up uh, for immigrants who feel under threat. Um, these are important steps on the road to making us a more empathetic nation. Um, that is my theme tonight, and it comes from my favorite personal moment, or uh, one of my favorite personal moments during uh, this last uh, not always, um, uh, not, not um, uh, always delightful campaign. Um, the day before the debate at Washington University in St. Louis, my friend David Brooks and I had a public discussion with Krista Tippett, the great uh, public who uh, started and moderates the great public radio show on being. Um, and at one point, I said that if I made a baseball cap, my hat would say, make America empathetic again. And about a week later, I got a lovely note from a man who said that he liked that line so much that he was making two baseball caps, one for him and one for me, bearing the, le bearing the legend, Make America Empathetic Again. And shortly thereafter, a, the hat, a perfect replica of the Trump hat, arrived at our home. Uh, it was such a good replica that my son said, Dad, that's a great hat, but you can't wear it because it looks so much like a Trump hat that anybody at a distance might get the idea that you're for Trump. Uh, but I treasure that man and that gift and that hat. Um, but on that theme, let's face it, it's a lot easier to feel empathy for people we see as like us, who agree with us, whom we have always empathized with at some level. Um, the challenge in our country right now is to feel empathy for those who are very different from us, whom we may disagree with on a great many things. Yet I do not see us solving our problems and speaking as someone uh, who's a progressive, I do not see us uh, winning in the long run, if we cannot find in ourselves a genuine empathy for those who disagreed with us in the last election. So the question I'd ask tonight um, is uh, uh, about why far-right politics is arising, not only here in the United States, uh, but also uh, across uh, Europe. And I also want to suggest that those of us who see these far-right movements as a danger, especially people of social democratic leanings like my own, but also centrists and conservatives who believe in moderation and democracy, uh, we especially need to understand why these movements are gaining uh, traction and to cultivate our own uh, empathetic imaginations. We need to understand the legitimate grievances that gave rise to these movements even as we must emphatically resist the politics they result in. Uh, more than that, we need to remember that Donald Trump's supporters are our fellow citizens, and yes, they need to remember this about us. Uh, I should say, as an aside, that one of the most troubling things about Trump's first weeks in office is that he has, up to now, and he did a little less so tonight, 
but until tonight, he had acted, as MSNBC's Chris Hayes said, more like the Republic, president of the Republican Party or the president of his base in the Republican Party uh, than as president of the United States. Um, but I think if you're a person of the left, uh, it's important to remind yourself that the Democratic re uh, left uh, rejects elitism on principle. It is democratic, after all. It seeks to speak for those, especially uh, those who are not privileged, who have reason to complain, who suffer from injustice, uh, even if we do not share their current political views. Uh, and to underscore the point, even if uh, we have an, an obligation to oppose expressions of those complaints that might promote racism or anti-Semitism or homophobia or other forms of pre prejudice. The great Michael Walzer said, wrote that criticism is most effective uh, when it gives voice to the common complaints of the people or elucidates the values that underlie those complaints. I think that's true. And the historian James Kloppenberg channeled St. Paul in talking about what I think of as one of the central obligations of democratic citizens. In his book, Toward Democracy, he wrote that we need to learn to see through each other's eyes, to think with one another's minds, and to treat one, uh, each other with, clarity, uh, with charity. Uh, we surely could use a lot of charity now. Um, I speak with genuine alarm about a crisis I see before us, uh, but I want to make clear before I do that I am an instinctively hopeful person um, who is sometimes capable of seeing the glass uh, not just one half full, but uh, one tenth full. Uh, I see hope as a virtue, and I still like uh, President Obama's formulation during the 2008 campaign when he joked that his opponents were accusing him of being a hope monger. Um, <laughs> hope is not blind optimism, Obama said. It's not ignoring the enormity of the task ahead or the roadblocks that stand in our path. It's not sitting on the sidelines or shirking from a fight. Hope is that thing inside us that insists, despite all evidence to the contrary, that something better awaits us if we have the courage to reach for it and to work for it and to fight for it. So I have by no means lost hope. Uh, and I will also bear in mind, and I think we all need to, uh, David Runciman's uh, observation that democracy lives in a semi-permanent state of crisis, which makes it hard to know when the crisis should be taken seriously. Uh, lovers of democracy can be like Red Sox fans. Yes, I am one of those, uh, who always seem to worry that disaster is just one error, one strikeout, or one wild pitch away. Uh, but with all those caveats taken care of, I really do think that this crisis is the real thing. I do believe that the world is going through a period of redefinition and that the commitments undergirding liberal democracy face a challenge unlike any they have faced since the 1930s and 1940s. It is a challenge to the ideas that have dominated Western political thought since 1945, openness, tolerance, compromise, and democracy itself. Um, writing about European social thought from 1890 to 1930, uh, the historian H. Stuart Hughes described the creative social thinkers he was describing as having a sense of impending doom of old practices and institutions no longer conforming to social realities. 
uses intellectuals felt they were watching the demise of an old society coupled with an agonizing uncertainty about what forms the new society might prove to be. Uh, those words have an astonishingly contemporary, even a disturbingly contemporary ring. Globalization, technological change, the rise of terrorism, uh, and movements that use religion to push back violently against the gains of modernity, the mass movements of populations, including an explosion in the number of refugees, rising inequality, and the continuing fallout from the economic crash of 2008, all these create a sense of things passing away, uses agonizing uncertainty about the forms a new society might take afflicts us too. Um, the rise of Donald Trump is thus more than a spectacular one-off political event, even if Trump himself is troubling in his own special ways. Across the democracies, parties representing a new far right have been gaining ground and threaten what might be seen as the broad democratic center of politics. We see this in the Netherlands, in France, in Germany, in Poland, in Hungary, and even in those long-time social democratic strongholds of Sweden, Finland, and Denmark. And of course, the Brexit vote in Britain earlier the, uh, last year can be interpreted in many different ways, but a sign of political stability it was not. And many of the sentiments behind Britain's Brexit vote reflected attitudes feeding the far right elsewhere, including here, a fear of terrorism and violence and economic discontent bred by the failure to distribute the fruits of globalization and technological advances more equitably. We Americans talk a great deal about our exceptionalism, and I think we need to defend that idea more than ever at a moment when our president has raised questions about whether he believes that the United States has a more honorable system than the one Putin has built in Russia. Um, the fact is that we do have the most durable Republican constitution in the world, and the arc of our history has decidedly bent toward democratization and inclusion. But as experiences in Europe show, Trump is neither uh, exceptional uh, nor particularly American, given his ties to these movements in Europe. Now, certain easy explanations of Trumpism are true enough. His movement can be seen as a backward-looking form of reaction, concentrated among older, less-off white voters who can abide neither the cultural changes of the last half century nor the increasingly diverse country that has come into being since we changed our immigration laws in the mid-1960s. Uh, in Make America Great Again, the telling word is again, uh, suggesting a glorious past that has been squandered. Um, Trump can and, and should also be seen as a product of a Republican Party leadership that has made promises to its base since Barry Goldwater's 1964 campaign that it couldn't possibly keep about radically reducing the size of government, rolling back cultural change, and uh, restoring us to the happy and more homogeneous days of the 1950s. Uh, Republican leaders were happy to use right-wing reaction uh, to win electoral victories, particularly in the uh, last two midterm elections. Uh, it's an argument I advanced in my book, Why the Right Went Wrong, and the sense of betrayal on the part of many conservatives in the base of the Republican Party is real, uh, and even if you don't share their views, understandable. Um, when I watch Republican leaders pondering how they first rode the Tea Party to victory and then had to look on as Trump took over their party, 
I am reminded of John F. Kennedy's observation that those who foolishly sought power by riding the back of the tiger ended up inside. Um, now, it's true that progressives tend toward uh, gloom, and I'd, uh, I'd assert without elaborating that there is a case to be made uh, that progressives are in fact riding uh, the wave of the future while their opponents, depending on uh, a dependent as they are on a much older constituency, represent the last spasms of a past that cannot be restored. Uh, but the threat to democratic tolerance is too great across the West for opponents of the far right to be complacent or to dismiss the worries giving rise to it. It is precisely a, f a profound fear that an older world is irretrievably passing away that has created the opportunity for Trump and the European movements from which the American alt-right uh, draws inspiration. Progressives and moderate conservatives alike are in trouble precisely because they have failed to grapple with the forces behind this intolerant and authoritarian surge. Let's start with globalization. The standard rap from defenders of free trade is true enough that technological change is probably an even more powerful force in undercutting incomes uh, and living standards of middle class and working class citizens across rich countries than trade. But those who are angry about what's happened to their lives are not deluded when they see the rise of new economies in Asia as threatening them, or when they fear that the spread of technology is threatening livelihoods that once allowed them at least modest comfort. Simply put, we have added hundreds of millions of new workers to the global labor market. This has created a downward-trending bidding war for less-skilled labor. Uh, Steve Wiseman of the pro very strongly pro-free trade Peterson Institute for International Economics has noted that trade has elevated the living standards of hundreds of millions, if not billions of people worldwide, but it has helped suppress the income of low-skilled middle-class workers in rich countries. The second group is understandably upset. And yes, while trade can create jobs, it can also destroy them, and those who lose out will notice more readily than those who gain, gradually gain modest ground. A much-cited study by three well-known economists found that import growth from China cost 2.4 million American jobs in the 2000s. Now, it's perfectly true that we cannot magically bring back the economic world of the 1950s any more than we can recreate the cultural world of that time, or for that matter, bring back the music. But supporters, <coughs> but supporters of an open global economy have simply not been attentive enough to the circumstances of those who are well-paid in an industrial economy and find themselves in crisis now. Trump and the rest of the far right play off the resulting discontents. Immigration is obviously central to the new backlash. For progressives especially, the economic discontents of angry voters are easy enough to understand, and in principle at least, they are amenable to redistributive solutions with which progressives are comfortable. But the backlash against immigration sits uneasily with the left and also with the libertarian and pro-market right. Moreover, the pronouncements about immigrants by Trump and far-right politicians uh, elsewhere can be so vicious that simple decency requires a robust defense of newcomers and especially a defense of refugees. Uh, caving into racism explicit or implicit is unacceptable. But calling out prejudice should be no barrier to understanding the causes of backlash. 
In some cases, residents of older communities are shocked by a sudden influx of migrants and experience a genuine sense of displacement and powerless in the face of powerlessness in the face of change they cannot control. Uh, to say this is to tell an old American story. Italians or Jews moving into neighborhoods of the 1910s generated hostile responses that were not much different uh, from those generated now against Latinos. Um, but saying this doesn't make the problem go away. Um, in other cases, and this goes back a long way too, um, long-time residents are simply annoyed that newcomers speak a different language. I have to say that I have sympathy for those uh, who speak a different language since being a French-Canadian from New England, I'm actually speaking to you in my second language tonight. Uh, French was actually my first uh, language. Um, but there were also struggles for power as new groups gain political ascendancy and older groups, once a majority, become minorities. And it's a simple fact that working class voters are more likely to find themselves in situations of direct competition uh, with immigrants than are the better off. At the very least, those of us with progressive views who are open to immigration should acknowledge um, that those who are reacting against immigration are, in the United States at least, responding to a certain amount of reality. The proportion of Americans who are foreign-born rose from 4.7% in 1970 to 13.1% in 2013. Again, the United States has struggled through periods of backlash before, after periods of high immigration. Witness the rise of the know-nothings in the 1950s and of the Klan in the 1920s. We tend to resolve these conflicts over time in favor of immigrants, often helped by periods of robust economic growth, which produce something better than zero-sum games. Those of us who support immigrant rights need to be sensitive to those to who pays the highest cost for a more open society. Many progressives have uh, urged specific measures to provide federal funds to communities where there were clear costs to local governments from absorbing large numbers of new uh, immigrants. I think we can also back broad measures, a higher minimum wage is certainly one of them, that can lift the living standards of lower income immigrants and native born alike. Um, I, in truth, uh, none of these measures will abruptly change the politics of immigration, but understanding the legitimate worries of those who are worried is better than dismissing a large share of our fellow citizens as bigotry. And the best way to fight bigotry when it does appear uh, is to reduce the sources of discontent that aggravate it. I want to talk for a second about cosmopolitanism. Uh, it's a word that captures another aspect of the reaction that's going on out there. Now, attacks on rootless cosmopolitans are the stuff of all forms of anti-Semitism, uh, and the old anti-Semitism, along with various other forms of bigotry, is not, alas, as old as we would wish it to be. But there's also a highly positive sense of this term offered by the Princeton philosopher Kwame Anthony Appiah. Uh, he argues that two strands intertwine in the notion of cosmopolitanism. One is the idea that we have obligations to others, obligations that stretch beyond those to whom we are related by ties of kith and kin, uh, or even the more formal ties of shared citizenship, he writes. The other is that we take seriously the value not just of human life, but of particular human lives, which means taking an interest in the practices and belief, beliefs that lend them significance. 
This should be an aspiration for all of us, and it means that those who live cosmopolitan lives must themselves uh, go about taking an interest in the practices and beliefs of those whom the late Father Andrew Greeley used to call neighborhood people. They are those who do not aspire to being citizens of the world, who love the particular patch where they were raised or have adopted as their own. There's evidence that many Brexit voters were neighborhood people, and I suspect many Trump voters were too. Uh, economic change, in, including globalization, is very hard on neighborhood people. It can disrupt and empty out the places they revere, driving young people away and undermining the economic base a community needs to survive. Liberals and conservatives alike, I think, insufficiently appreciate what makes neighborhood people tick and why they deserve our respect. Liberals are instinctive cosmopolitans who often long for the freedom of the big metropolitan areas. Free market conservatives typically say that if a place can't survive the rigors of market competition, if the factories leave, the people left behind are best off if they simply find another place to live. Let it be said that there are no simple answers for the plight of neighborhood people who find themselves under siege. Ghost towns are not a new creation. There are limits to how much a local economy can be propped up when it is pummeled by globalization scales. But to write off such places and the people who live there is morally unacceptable and politically dangerous. If there are limits on what can be done to help such places help themselves, this does, this does not mean that nothing can be done. Neighborhood people are the forgotten men and women of an integrating planet. Their affections and their loyalties are civic gifts, and we should nurture them, uh, not cast them aside. Then there is what I like to call uh, the elitism of the schoolers. I owe the term schoolers to a friend who used it one day to refer to those who always want to go back to school for yet another degree. Um, I, I shouldn't speak against them because those people help the finances of great universities like UC Santa Barbara. Um, but schoolers, in another sense, um, those who say that there's nothing wrong with our economy that can't be solved by giving more education to more people, dominate our economic debate partly because improving education and training really is important, but also because the frame of the debate uh, itself is set by those who happen to have a lot of formal education. Yes, the education argument is broadly right. We do need to, be, uh, to prepare people better for the economy as it exists. People with more education do tend to prosper more than those who have less. Expanding preschool, including improving K-12 education, giving more access to post-secondary education to more people is a national imperative. But especially for older workers, a lot of this talk can sound like a put-down. Once they could provide a decent living for themselves and their families, even if they didn't spend long years in school or university. This takes us back to globalization and technological change, but with an additional fill-up. Liberals are always sensitive to blaming the victim, but a lot of the education talk that comes from both conservatives and liberals sounds like blame heaped on those who didn't think they needed more than a high school degree to make do in the world, which for many at the time when they made the decision was a reasonable assumption. <coughs> and you wonder why they're angry and want to hope that Trump isn't blowing smoke when he says he'll bring back the coal mines and the old factories? Yes, he is blowing smoke. He is exploiting their feelings. Uh, he will not be able to keep those promises. 
But when he made those promises, he at least gave the impression that he respected the feelings of those workers. Those who speak with disdain or condescension to those who had the rules for mobility abruptly changed on them in the middle of their lives will never get a hearing. Uh, Finally, there is a word that conservatives like much more than we progressives do, tradition. Uh, This is a tough one because one person's reverence for tradition can be seen by another as a rationalization for prejudice and oppression. Southern whites did indeed invoke tradition to rationalize the subjugation of African Americans. Opponents of gay rights and gay marriage invoke tradition to explain why they really believe that the only valid forms of union are between a man and a woman. But not every tradition is oppressive, and many who in principle support gay rights and same-sex marriage live quite traditional lives themselves. This, by the way, includes many same-sex couples. And when those reacting to changes all around them say, I fear I will not be able to pass the world I grew up in to my children, they are not displaying paranoia and they are not necessarily being reactionary. Change has come very fast in the last half century. Everything I've described from the shifting economic ground to the free movement of people to the death of old places to the changes to to our economy's reward structure has created a world where many traditional markers and boundaries have disappeared. Religious people, uh, especially conservative Christians and Orthodox Jews, have seen both the rising secularism and the growing uh, importance of non-Western faiths in their own societies. For many of us, pluralism is a great blessing, but for many, the rise of uh, this diversity Um, is troubling because it disturbs the ground on which people have stood for so long. And for many, the rise of violent forms of Islam has made these changes all the more frightening. New rules and habits about human relationships challenge the ways in which many people have lived for the entirety of their lives. Economic forces have disrupted family lives, and many communities are ravaged by the opioid crisis with death rates rising. I think one of the most troubling studies of the last couple of years showed that the mortality rates for whites aged 45 to 54 increased by 134 deaths per 100,000 people between 1999 and 2014. Now, I can be legitimately criticized for having lumped a whole lot of things together in some sort of traditionalist parade of horribles. Uh, My own view, in fact is that modernity has liberated far more than it has oppressed and that we should want to continue to move forward to advance the rights of women, of African Americans, of ethnic minorities, and of the LGBTQ community and others who were previously oppressed. Indeed, as the police shootings of recent years have shown, we have a lot more work to do in achieving genuine racial equality and justice. I honor tradition, but am not a traditionalist. I follow the great scholar Yaroslav Pelikan, who observed that tradition is the living faith of the dead, while traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Uh, (coughs) And by the way, I think that same-sex marriage was, in important ways, a conservative demand that has actually advanced the cause of marriage and family. But those of a progressive temperament cannot be blind to the ways in which social changes, both positive and negative, have disrupted both the lives and sense of security of millions of our fellow citizens. It was Marx and Engels who wrote, all that is solid melts into air. 
This is how the world feels to many millions who have never read the Communist Manifesto, including many who have no interest in Marxist doctrines. Uh, in such a world, the rise of dangerous forms of right-wing politics uh, seems almost inevitable. These are the conundrums I think we on the progressive side need to grapple with uh, in pushing back and trying to reverse this movement to the right. Globalization, immigration, the elitism of the educated, cosmopolitanism and its discontents, and the decay of tradition. Those who are, of us who are progressive are challenged by our times to come up with both a better intellectual framework and a practical program to answer some of these concerns. Progressives and democratic conservatives alike need to adjust better than we have to the new world in which we find ourselves. We need to think hard about non-economic matters like patriotism, a sense of belonging, how to build community, how to rear children in a very challenging time. And we need to think anew about an economy that is innovative in so many ways, but that needs adjustment so that those innovations work on behalf of the many and not just the few. Those of us who would stem the tide of the far right and preserve our open democratic societies from reaction and racism need to listen at least as much as we preach. We need to take seriously the grievances and the fears of those who are feeding movements such as Trump's. It is a basic tenet of modern liberalism that the only way to solve a problem is to deal with its underlying causes. This applies as much to the struggles of those who are currently our political opponents as it does to the problems faced by our political friends. It comes down to this. I want supporters of Donald Trump to empathize more than they do right now with immigrants and refugees, with African Americans, with Latinos and Muslims, and Asian Americans, and with gays and lesbians. But those Trump supporters have every right to ask me in return to stand in their shoes, to see the world as they do from Appalachia or a once mighty mill town, to understand that empathy cannot be selective and that we must try hard to experience their struggles, their hardships, their hopes. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the courageous German churchman who was killed by the Nazis shortly before the end of World War II for his participation in the plot against Hitler, taught us that nothing we despise in other men is inherently absent from ourselves. We must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do and don't do in, and more in the light of what they suffer. We will defend democratic values not through an arrogance that is contrary to the democratic spirit itself, but by embracing that spirit in empathy and with grace. We are still seeking the world Dr. King described when he urged us to speed the time when justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. We will do this not simply by defeating our adversaries, but by converting them and in the process, converting ourselves. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. EJ will take questions, so if you have questions, please come to one of the microphones. Here's one, there's one, and direct them to him. And I just want to say I am very open to dissent. I grew up in a very politically argumentative extended family, and I was telling some people tonight about my dear Uncle Ray, whom I argued with about politics for 35 years, and when he died, his kids very kindly asked me to give the eulogy 
And in that eulogy, I made a point of quoting Richard Nixon, uh, partly because it was a Nixon quote I liked, but my, my Uncle Ray loved Richard Nixon. And I told people in the church that I quoted Nixon partly because I hoped that Uncle Ray might hear me, and that would make him want to pop out of that casket and come back to life just to say, I knew you'd be quoting Nixon someday. <laughs> uh, go ahead, please. Well, thank you for coming tonight and speaking. Um, I know that you're uh, Catholic, and I was born and raised a Catholic, come from a very strong Catholic family. And uh, this evening I read your op-ed piece about uh, Steve Bannon and uh, his visits to the Vatican and uh, his alliance with that right-wing cardinal. Then I went and read the New York Times article by uh, Jason... Uh, Horowitz. Horowitz, yeah, yeah, and I read that. And uh, it's just really interesting what's going on. I was wondering if you could just elaborate on that. And also um, just, uh, I guess... The, if there's a schism in America between, you know, obviously right-wing conservative Christians and Catholics versus, you know, liberal and progressive Catholics and Christians, if there's any left. And um, if you could just discuss that. Thank you. Yeah. Actually, there are quite a lot of us left, uh, I would insist. Uh, thank you for the question. Um, uh, the gentleman was referring to a column I wrote about... Um, uh, whether Steve Bannon was, in some sense, taking on uh, Pope Francis. It's obviously not something he would want to do publicly, but he had spoken with, um, uh, spoken to a group uh, that was met in Rome, a very, a kind of ultra-traditionalist group. And by the way, if you're interested in figuring out what Steve Bannon thinks, it's absolutely worth uh, going online and either listening to or reading this speech he gave in the Vatican, because it's in many different ways. It's a powerful expression of his worldview. And just in passing, one of the things that troubled me most was his view of Islam uh, sort of equating the current circumstance uh, with the circumstance back in the 8th century, uh, and uh, literally. And And I don't think that's a very productive way to look at the uh, our current situation. Um, but there is a, um, you know, there is a big argument going on, and I'll just speak of the Catholic Church, although this is true uh, across um, pretty much all religious traditions, but certainly across Christianity in the United States. Um, the rise of Pope Francis uh, has, if you will, re-strengthened more progressive forces uh, around the world and in the American Catholic Church. Um, if you look at some of the appointees of Pope Francis to major uh, dioceses, uh, Archbishop uh, Supic uh, in Chicago, uh, uh, Archbishop Tobin in uh, uh, Newark, uh, Bishop McElroy down the way in um, San Diego, um, these are all Pope Francis bishops uh, whose attitudes are broadly much more progressive, much more in line with Pope Francis. And then you have on the right end of the church, um, uh, I've got to make a careful distinction here. I think there are plenty of conservative American Catholics who love Pope Francis like everybody else simply because of the kind of person he is. Um, but there are um, you know, many people on the right of the church who think that Francis is um, diluting church doctrine uh, and his sort of rebalancing the emphasis of church teaching much more uh, towards social justice uh, and the problems of the poor um, and away from issues such as abortion and gay rights. He hasn't changed church teaching on any of these things, but the balance of his teaching is clearly 
uh, quite different. Um, and so that struggle is going on. Um, it appears from what he has said that Steve Bannon is on that other side. Um, it would be fascinating. I, I'm sure, I doubt very much that he wants to add uh, to Donald Trump's list of enemies by picking an open fight uh, with Pope Francis. Uh, but you can see, but a lot of, there are a lot of Catholics who have been willing uh, to fight with Pope Francis. I think the, um, you know, if you want two contrasting views of Catholicism, you know, I represent one poll of that, and uh, Ross Douthat, the New York Times columnist, um, writes, is, I disagree with him, but he writes very intelligently about the more traditionalist view that has real qualms about Francis. And we're friendly, and I said, all right, you told me I had to pay attention to Pope Benedict. I think you need to pay some attention uh, to Pope Francis. Um, but that's a sort of uh, rough take on that. Uh, but it's been going on for a long time. I mean, some people are old enough here, like I am, to remember the Berrigan brothers. Um, you know, and you had, uh, you know, bishops in, uh, you know, the um, uh, Bishop of Chicago uh, when Barack Obama actually got a salary from the Catholic Church as a, a community organizer, Cardinal Bernadine. I mean, we, we've gone through these cycles before. we coming out of a more conservative cycle, I think, going into something else. Thanks. Ah, there you are. I didn't even see you right in front of me. I know, they said. So I thought what you said, what, this point about empathy is really important. I live the world, I live, I'm a psychologist, so I've been thinking a lot about what's broken and what's wrong with the country and, and why we've gotten to where we are. Um, and I think it's much easier for us to be angry um, when it, it upsets me when, my, when I talk to people and we're so likely to dismiss the other side as stupid and arrogant. And so I think it's really, really important what you're saying about encouraging empathy. Um, but I wonder what you think about the following piece is that I think we also have to give grief a chance. Not peace, but grief a chance because um, to get past, to be empathic also requires at least, I think, grief. And I was wondering what you thought about that. Grief about this is a new world. To understand the difficulty that led people to vote for Trump requires us to understand the grief and disappointment that they're experiencing. And if, if we can't get to a place of understanding other, of being able to grieve with other people, whether we can actually ever be empathic with them. So I was just wondering what you thought about that. I, I, I'd like to have a whole lot of sessions with you. That was really, <laughs> that was really quite wonderful. Thank you. Um, that's good, that, that's good, <laughs> good uh, enough. Some people might say, I need some sessions with you. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll top you one on that. Good. I'm still mad. Uh, I'm still upset, and I, nothing I say about empathy should be seen as suggesting in any way that people should avoid political action. Uh, I thought, I went down to the march, uh, the women's march in Washington, and it was a thrilling experience to see that many people mm -hmm. uh, express um, in, a, in a very thoughtful and peaceful and non-sectarian ways. Anybody associated with the left knows how sectarian the left can be. It was a very non-sectarian march, and the values were very broad. 
Um, and I'm for that. I'm for the demonstrations. I'm for the efforts to save the Affordable mm -hmm. uh, Care Act. I'm, I'm for political action. Um, and that we shouldn't, you know, and as I said at the beginning of the talk, because I have genuine worries that, um, you know, you see sort of little bits and pieces of how this might lead to a more autocratic form of government, uh, you've got to resist right from the start, mm -hmm. and you've got to notice it right from the start, and you've got to risk looking paranoid to prevent uh, uh, our democracy from being, um, you know, being hurt or destroyed. Um, so none of, none of what I say is intended to discourage anyone from taking political action, which mm -hmm. is why I started there. But I think that, I think all of us had the experience in this campaign of hearing people um, sort of put down the Trump voters uh, in ways that we would not accept other groups being put down like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, you know, again, I make a, another distinction, which is if somebody is out there expressing blatantly racist or anti-Semitic or homophobic views, that should be condemned. Um, but the person who feels a sense of discontent um, because things have genuinely gone wrong in, his, in their uh, lives, uh, who have, we may disagree with the way in which they analyze the political solution to that, but we'll never talk them into another approach right. unless we get uh, why they feel that way. Um, and, you know, and treat them like human beings, just like we're asking them to treat us like human beings. So I'm, what I, I'm trying to mm -hmm. sort of make a case for yeah. two things at the same time. It's not a balance. It's, I think they're both important. I think, um, you know, I think a lot about Martin Luther uh, King. In a lot of ways, reading um, a book he wrote, a collection of his sermons called Strength to Love, when I was in high school, is one of the reasons I'm a liberal. Um, and what I really loved about King is that he combined uh, militancy uh, with a belief in the conversion of adversaries. Uh, not simply, he, he'd do what it took to get uh, to the promised land. He'd take the actions necessary to win a political result. Uh, but his goal was always uh, to try to bring the adversary over that whole idea of conversion, and he was a preacher, mm -hmm. um, is really has always been very powerful to me, um, and I don't want to give up on it. Uh, so you can be militant and still open to your adversary at the same time, even though it's really hard. Thank you. You've been very helpful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Please. Hi, I have. Two, thank you so much for being here. I have two, I think, sides of the same question. One is, I would love to be empathetic with the other side, but it's very difficult to look at some of their news sources and yeah. <laughs> find their side, um, or speak with someone who's only been watching something that I find, you know, not factual. <laughs> but then the second part is, now there's the twist of fake news being claimed as undercutting all of press. And I'm not, I don't even really know how to ask this because I'm still like completely amazed at what's happening and I don't actually know how to have the conversation. Right, like how can you talk to folks who believe a whole lot of things that are flatly untrue is kind of what you're Absolutely. saying, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am, the, here's the most unpopular thing I'll say tonight. I'm a New England Patriots fan. And um, there's a point to this. 
Um, the, um, uh, and I love Deflategate because I told everyone I finally learned the joy of being a Fox News commentator because I didn't actually care what the facts were. I just knew which side I was on. Um, although, to this day, I would, could make you a case, but I won't, I won't go there. Um, no, I think we, we, this is one of, uh, you know, if you're talking about empathy, uh, this is one of the problems we have understanding each other across these lines, uh, because it is possible uh, to live uh, in uh, an information world of your own with your comrades. Um, and uh, there it is, you know, the, the amazing thing about technology is that it speeds the spread of both truth and falsehood. Um, you know, it makes both more efficient. Um, and so we have the capacity to gather <coughs> extraordinary amounts of information quickly. Uh, what I can do, what we can do with these little devices we carry around is breathtaking. Um, but it's also the case um, that it is easy to package uh, uh, non-information as if it were uh, information. Now again, um, we, the, you know, we, I, I think liberals, um, I, I, I think just from the studies I have seen, uh, liberals are a little less given to some of this than some of the right-wing networks are, and I didn't see a lot of liberal fake news. Uh, out there. On the other hand, we can live in our own information worlds uh, as well if we want. Um, and so it is very hard, but I guess there are two things. One is I hope that the greater realization that people have, I think, after this campaign, uh, that there is actually, uh, if, I, if you will, genuine fake news out there, like that this stuff really is made up. Uh, entirely made up, completely out of whole cloth. Um, you know, as somebody who works for, uh, writes, you know, opinion column for the Washington Post, uh, it's, uh, it really heartens me how many people are taking uh, subscriptions to places like the New York Times or the Washington Post, uh, partly because they like to read them, but also out of solidarity uh, for people who are trying to live up to certain traditional norms. Uh, and one of the things that troubles me most about what Trump is up to uh, in this sphere um, is trying to call the reporting of truth a partisan act. You know, I'm an opinion writer. He can say anything he wants about me, and that's fine. Uh, but he can't say that about my colleagues uh, who are uh, news reporters, who are simply doing their jobs, who do not have, who really have a very strong ethical sense that their job is to report news, not to be opinionated the way I am. Uh, and I really worry that when you start conflating these things, you get into a lot of trouble. So I don't know the answer to your question, uh, except uh, to maybe send people subscriptions to various uh, uh, outlets, uh, not necessarily mine, uh, and um, sort of start talking about things. My, my dad... Uh, one of the reasons I, I actually have love for conservatives, I grew up around a lot of them. My dad was a conservative, but I started becoming liberal when I was about 13. And um, I asked my dad for a subscription to the New Republic, and he said, sure. 
because uh, my dad thought it would be good. First of all, I love him because he thought argument was a good thing. Uh, and secondly, because he wanted me to have the best information for my argument, because that would make our arguments better. Um, so I guess my hope is I want all conservatives in the country to be like my dad. <laughs> Uh, I think we already have started to learn some things that are leading us uh, to be more attentive and more active. Uh, and I want to thank you all for coming out tonight. And I want you all to stay active. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.